If you listen to this podcast and follow what we do at Troutbitten, then you're a thoughtful angler, and you don't accept the status quo simply because that's how it's always been done. Squall of Fishing designs and creates fly fishing apparel with this same philosophy. Squalla was started by a group of lifelong fly anglers who spent their careers working for some of the biggest names in the outdoor industry, and they understood that essential fly fishing apparel like waders, jackets, sun gear, and insulation could simply be better. So now, Squalla makes gear for us, the like-minded few, serious anglers who don't take themselves too seriously. Check them out at squallafishing.com. Water is essential for life, but for Orvis, it's the blood of the brand. Orvis has been the leader in fly fishing since 1856. No other brand can match the explorative and innovative spirit they bring to the water today. Everything at Orvis is about inspiring and empowering adventure and wonder in nature. Rooted in the vitality of fly fishing, fueled by passion and curiosity for the outdoors, Orvis designs and develops products and experiences providing the knowledge and expertise to enable more meaningful moments and connections in nature. With over a century and a half of experience in the field and on the water, Orvis seeks to ignite that passion in others. This is the Trout Bitten Podcast. Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten? Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten? Yeah, Trout Bitten. Trout Bitten. It's about trout. Wild trout. This is Trout Bitten. This is the Trout Bitten Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Dominic Swintoski, the owner of Trout Bitten and the author of TroutBitten.com. All right, welcome to episode 10 of a nine-part podcast series. That's right, we're going to do it one more time. Seriously, we're here tonight because the response to this series covering the nine essential skills of tight line and Euronymphing has been amazing, and it seems to warrant one more episode to sort of wrap everything up. Throughout the last nine weeks, I've received countless emails and messages with questions and follow-up thoughts from listeners and readers of this series. Anglers of every skill level have reached out for some clarity on things that Austin and I may not have made so clear, and Austin, I blame you for that. scattered laughter i know (laughs) honestly this stuff is hard it's kind of like playing guitar you can learn your first few chords in open position learn your one four five and minor six and go play a bunch of songs around the campfire i mean it absolutely takes time and commitment to get to the first level but anyone who plays guitar knows that to take the next steps you have to really dig in learn the fretboard practice the host of skills put in the time and tie it all together. And in my experience, the same can be said about tight line and Euronymphing. Like so many great pursuits in life, the more you learn, the more you realize how much more there is to learn. So yeah, this 10th episode is for answering your questions. It's for clarifying and for filling in a few gaps along the way. But before we get going, let me serve out a few important thank yous. First to Austin Dando, my co-host of season two. Here, here who put in nine solid weeks talking through five hours of tactical stuff and keeping us on track and on message. Thanks, buddy. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm. Also, a big, big thank you to our show sponsors for the nine episodes. Avid Max, Fooling Mill, Tactical Fly Fisher, and Orvis. The support of these sponsors is what made Season 2 a viable project. So please support these companies. Tell them Troutbitten sent you and use the discount codes that they've generously provided. Also, and most importantly, thanks to you, the listeners, because it's your downloads, the way you share the podcast with your friends, your direct donations, and just taking the time to rate, subscribe, and leave a comment. That's what makes these wheels go around. So I'm happy to welcome back my friends and yours, Bill Dell, Trevor, Dr. Wool Smith. (laughs) (laughs) You got it. (laughs) I got it. Josh Darling and Austin Dando. Guys, how you doing? Hey, Great. good. We're good. Welcome back. Good to be back. Glad to be back. We're back, baby. Yeah. Hey, the weather's cold again. Got my wool on. <laughs> Cozy. <laughs> I'm just here to disagree with you since I know. Austin didn't That's do right. a good job of that. <laughs> there was not nearly two. enough disagreeing in season two. <laughs> <laughs> so, Josh, you just put the finishing touches on the latest Trout Bitten film. 
uh, yes. about splitting the rod. Nice work, dude. Good stuff. Yeah, thank you. Excited. Hey, do you enjoy sifting through the gigabytes of footage with my ugly face in front of you for hours at a time? Best part of my week. <laughs> Best part. Do you like sorting through all the multiple takes and mistakes? We're getting better at that. <laughs> and by we, you're getting better at that. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, good job. Yeah, you too. All right, guys. So you've all listened to each podcast episode, right? Have you done all your homework? Oh, yeah. We'll know if you mm-hmm. haven't. That's right. That's, That's right. right, Austin. That's right. We will is there a quiz? Pop quiz. Or, or is there a quiz to start out with? This is the quiz. That's right. There will be questions. And after listening to the whole series, is there anything you want to add or that you think needs fleshed out a little bit more? What do you think? What do we miss? What needs added to? This is tough. You guys were thorough. Josh, go when ahead. You, yeah. When, yeah. When you break something down like that, <laughs> I mean, when you break it down the way that you guys did in nine steps and... and you spend 30 minutes on, on each one. Uh, how about this? You guys talked in episode one, angle and approach. And I mean, really in the first three episodes, especially turnover and tuck casting and sticking the landing. Yeah. Uh, a lot about positioning yourself on the water for, for the right drift, the right approach. One sure. of the things that I thought would be, would be helpful to mention is when you're learning to do these things, don't just stick to when I was listening through it. I, I called it. What did I call it? I called it the uh, the the trout pit and golden formula. The mm-hmm. two rods up, one rod over. Yeah, right, right. But don't just stick only to that. But yeah. the, but find the angle that that you need to see everything that's happening the best. When we're on the water, we're dealing with a lot of glare. And when you're working through learning these principles, I think mm-hmm. it's super helpful to pick a position in the water and pick a pick a position that you're going to cast from where you're going to see every bit of it so that you can learn everything that you need to learn from the drift. Yeah, yeah, that's nice. Yeah, if you can't see what you're doing, there's no point in doing it, right? Yeah, so you're going to bend that formula. I like that, the golden, what'd you call it, the golden formula? Yeah, the golden formula. <laughs> Trout bit and golden formula. Golden ratio, is that a thing? Yeah, the ratio, ratio? That's, yeah, that's what it should be called. The golden ratio is golden a Golden ratio thing. is in photography, right? Yeah, I actually wrote it down as the golden ratio. I don't know why I said golden formula. <laughs> is that like Pythagoras, sure the Pythagorean theorem? Isn't it's that the golden ratio? just like that. Science guy's back. <laughs> Not looking for hypotenuses here, guy. <laughs> Come on, guy. I'm gonna I'm gonna research that. I'm gonna research that. I know. <laughs> hey, guy. Come on, guy. It's <laughs> a good one. Come on, guy. Anyway, the uh, Pythagorean theorem only applies. The drop it in golden ratio. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Golden ratio. <laughs> Two rods up, one rod over. This is advanced stuff. Yep. It's it really is. It's a very <laughs> yeah. good rule of thumb. Yeah. But yeah. I will absolutely bend that. I'm sure we all do. Bend it. Uh, do what you got to do, you know, but then recognize that as soon as you get out of, especially the one, the one rod length over, as soon as you get away from that, you're going to incur some drag. That's mm-hmm. all. One of, the, one of the first things starting out, I think, is a good tip would be to try to fish in control because I think that's my biggest weakness looking at it is I like to get greedy and I like to fish two rod lengths over, five rod lengths up. Or whatever it is, and you know, you keep doing it, and you're like, ah, oh, you know, I can get it a little bit further. And That's why so, you fish an overweighted system, right, Bill? Yeah, exactly. If you fish, yeah. there's enough weight to counter any sag. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You got it. Five, six millimeter beads. You'll get <laughs> it. You'll get it down. <laughs> One thing that I thought as I listened through is, I, I mean, I thought you guys did a an amazingly thorough job laying out the different aspects to the system. Uh, but I was reflecting on my learning process through each of those different aspects. And I think, you know, for me, my learning of that system and of fishing in that method um, mm-hmm. by no means followed like a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight kind of path, you know? And yeah, yeah I think it's neither. important. And I don't think you guys implied that, but I think one thing that would be important for our listeners, especially guys that are a little bit newer to Euro nymphing, to think about is as you begin to fish, maybe even keep notes on each of those individual kind of aspects to the skill set that you need to your own nymph effectively nice. and sort of figure out which one, which aspects you maybe have a little bit more natural skill in or a little more natural talent in. And then, and the ones that you feel like you could use a little bit more work in and really practice and try to you know, if, if sticking the landing is where you, and I'm speaking from personal experience, sticking the landing and into my cider angle, that's an area that, 
you know, just with, I think, changing conditions and uh, it's something that I always need to work on. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of times in my fishing expeditions, I will spend time like just casting to the same drift over and over and over. And I find myself Mm -hmm. just, I get to a point where I'm not, I know I'm not catching a fish anymore. I'm just working on sticking the landing and I just have isolated variables in that particular lane, standing where I'm standing with the wind speed, what it is, the weight on the end of my line. And I just want to stick the landing. And so, Mm -hmm. and for our listeners, don't hesitate to take your time rolling through the different aspects of this and really breaking them down for yourself. And I think it makes a lot of sense to sort of keep track of things, whether it's a note on your iPhone or just keep it jot in a, you know, a moleskin or a journal or something like that. But, um, yeah, that your learning does not need to be linear and and it's okay to kind of bounce around and learn. I think that mm-hmm. as you gain skills in one aspect and one skill, it almost exposes where you need to grow in one of the other aspects, um, mm. which is which is kind of a cool, I, your own nymphing is very yeah. much layers of an onion, you know. Yeah, like you say, going back is what we're all doing. Mm-hmm. You know, you say, oh, I understand it all. I can go back and like you said, work on, this, on sticking the landing tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, right. Or just continue to try to get better and better at that tuck cast. Definitely. Once I corrected that, I feel like that instant, the tuck cast and having instantaneous contact with your flies and being able to detect a strike really added up for more fish for me because I felt like there's a lot of times when the fish will eat when the fly almost on entry it seems like within yeah. let's say less yeah. than two seconds of the dra- the drift mm-hmm. um i feel like that was one of the aha moments that i had like when i went through this learning process over the years that it that was one that really stuck in my head as wow this this equals more fish yeah bill i can attest to that i think uh you've taught me that lesson on multiple occasions i remember uh one morning a couple years ago you're like fishing here they eat it really fast especially in the morning right when the fly enters yeah whatever and then i started like you're like no get tight right away okay so i pretty much land those flies and took the slack out in one motion and boom they're on it it's like oh Mm -hmm. man i would have missed those fish and you said that absolutely yeah when i was learning to do that when i was learning tuck cast in general i noticed that i had such a I developed such a poor habit of pointing my rod at where I was going to cast it to. And that obviously leads to getting that rod tip down. And I mean, I think that we see that a lot in fly fishing is on that final shooting cast, that shooting press of the rod, the rod tip drops. And you guys talked about that in that Mm -hmm. that episode. Mm -hmm. I noticed that I had to almost counteract that by really intentionally thinking about on that last, when I'm pressing into that cast, in order to, as soon as those flies get to the end of their end of their road and they loop over, and I feel that tug where they're going to drop down into the water, I would lift up and forward. I would I'd push my mm-hmm. whole arm up and yeah. forward. And that kind of like intentionally doing that every time taught my body to, well, I mean, what you guys said, said stick the landing. It was mm-hmm. getting that cider yeah. in position even before the flies hit the water. Nice. You know? Josh, do you remember... Uh... Many years ago now, I, I remember reading uh, about the tuck cast in Joe Humphrey's Trout Tactics. And I remember I was like, texted Josh, you, have you tried this tuck cast thing yet? And you're like, mm-hmm. no, what's that? And I'm like, well, I'm coming over. And we started tuck casting out. <laughs> coming <driveway>. over. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, yeah. pitch black at night. I'm like, we got we to gotta get this. Little driveway tuck cast. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> I remember that. This episode is supported by Trident Fly Fishing. Trident is one of the best fly shops in the U.S. With over 30,000 fly fishing and fly tying products in stock, they have everything an angler needs, and they ship fast. Trident also has a huge selection of Euro nymphing supplies, rods and reels, leaders and sires, beadhead nymphs, tactical hooks, and tungsten beads, and all orders over $49 ship for free. For a limited time, Trident is offering Trout Bitten listeners 10% off their first order. Just use the code TROUTBITTEN in all caps at checkout. Visit tridentflyfishing.com and fill up your cart. Since 2010, Smith Creek New Zealand has provided innovative, high-quality angling solutions designed to free up your hands, keep your gear in easy reach, and keep our waters clean. Smith Creek's award-winning rod clip attaches to your vest and grips a variety of rod sizes, freeing up your hands to tie a fly 
change a hook, or release your catch. All Smith Creek products are built guide tough, using high quality materials like anodized marine grade aluminum, non-corrosive fasteners, and UV resistant nylon. To learn more about other innovative products, such as the patented net holster, spent line wrangler, or rod rack, visit smithcreek.co. That's smithcreek.co. This, this is good. So, hey, let's move into uh, some questions here. The first question really is going to be about the tuck cast. Um, uh, we can't answer every question that I've gotten, but really there are some, some themes that have cropped up, meaning many people struggle with the same things. And I'm not surprised by that because I see the same trends while guiding to Bill and Austin. You probably do. People have the same questions and sort of the same issues, right? It's kind of like the same tree branch out there that everybody hangs up on with the flies dangling, the tip it all tangled up. <laughs> You're going along just fine, and the same stumbling block gets in your way just as it did for the angler before you. So I chose the questions that tend to reflect uh, a lot of the other questions. Um, and here we go. This is from Lee Schumann uh, by way of the comments section on the Troutbitten website. Lee says, Tuck casting is great, and I need to improve mine. However, on the streams I fish, I can do a real tuck cast less than half the time since a tuck cast requires a vertical rod motion so the flies don't curve to the left or the right. Between the limbs over my head or hanging over the target, I very often don't have the room to keep the rod vertical, stop the rod tip high, and let the flies drop in ahead of the leader. Ten-foot rods make this even harder. So what do you do in that situation? And as I said, I use sidearm casts more often than I don't. So can we answer Lee's question? What do you think, guys? So... One of the most important things I think when casting is if, if you've got overhead branches, don't look at them. It's the whole um, look where you want to cast. If you're mm. staring at the you know, first step, when you're, when you're, don't stare at the branches, stare at the like water that. underneath it. Yeah. Because I, I've caught myself at times just a slight glance up. And next thing you know, the, the flies following where I'm looking and flies are in the tree. Mm-hmm. Um, but to your point, um, like a tuck cast to me is your the goal of the tuck cast is to basically you have that momentum of the rod coming forward and you want to abruptly stop it to push the momentum of the line and the flies in kind of a direct angle it doesn't have to be an overhead cast right it can be like i think you mentioned this a sidearm cast it takes some getting used to and so like my general motion when I fish is I, I tend to fish almost sidearm all the time. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm tuck casting, I'm, I'm just coming forward. I think of it as rod comes forward. I'm stopping it right at my chest. Yeah. The rod should never, I guess, start to face down. It should be in whether it be to the, it's the same thing if it's at a side angle, if it's at an angle like overhead to the sidearm. Either way, you just need to come to an abrupt stop to push every to push the momentum of everything to go forward. Yeah, I, I think there's nothing more misunderstood than the tuck cast. From what I see of all the, you know, different kind of casts out there. And part of the question here, it says, uh, since the tuck cast requires a vertical rod position, but no, it doesn't. So really, that's an assumption right there that, um, you know, I'm going to point out. It doesn't. You don't have to be coming in completely vertical. You don't need, you know, yeah. uh, sky-high clearance to get a great tuck cast. You really don't. The same thing Bill is describing is the same thing I'm sure we all do. You can, I mean, I feel like I can uh, cast under an overhanging limb that's just five feet off of the water. That would be a challenging one, but let's, you know, let's say 10 feet. Um, pretty easily coming in under 10 feet. You can kind of go sidearm, and you're going to think like, oh, if I stop it, then I'm going to get this curve cast going. You know, if I'm right-handed, if I stop it, I'm going to get this left curve going. And Lee acknowledges that. That's a fair assumption. But there's something you can do. You can come in sidearm, but the last thing that you do with your arm and or wrist is going to translate to the rod tip. And if you have enough mm-hmm. speed, which is key, then that rod tip is going to force that leader not to the left, but it's just going to go, boom, right down in. So you can come in kind of, let's mm-hmm. say, you're kind of starting at sidearm, but you're finishing with this very subtle and small motion over the top. Yeah. And that's how you can seriously do a tuck cast. Just, I mean, five feet of clearance. 
Yeah, it's important to mention too, we've got the hard tuck and just a regular tuck. And at the end of the day, what we're looking for is a fly first entry. So we're yeah. not always going to be, uh, our goal isn't always to have the flies, you know, plummeting to the bottom extremely fast. Some days it's just mm-hmm. a soft tuck. Um, but yeah, you could have your rod at a, a two o'clock, a three o'clock angle and still be able to, to get the same effect. Mm-hmm. Good point. Yeah. yeah, I think it, it it just makes things a little bit more tricky and you have to be much more thoughtful. But Really, all it means is you have to generate that speed in a shorter distance, you know, mm, in a, in a, a shorter point. span. It's and true. So, and, and for someone like that, fishing on water like that, I would definitely fish a shorter rod. That's going to help a lot with that. Mm-hmm. I've been fishing a nine-foot rod a lot lately just because yeah. it's it has more power. Like, I think, I think uh, when I was fishing with you, 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 you described it well. It's just more crisp. Mm-hmm. Like the 10-foot rods are a little bit flimsy. Where they are nine foot rod will give you that more crisp and faster motion. When I feel like I'm struggling out there, let's say for days at a time, and I kind of lost my mojo, I'll often go back to the first rod that I started doing all this on, which was a five weight. Uh, it was an eight and a half foot five weight, and I go back mm-hmm. to that. <laughs> yeah, and it forces me first of all to be very careful about my angle and my approach, and it's more crisp, like you said, Bill. I get more power generated from it. Mm, it just cleans everything up for me, and I understand. It's like partly because I have such history with that rod. I used it for five years to kind of understand the tight line game. The other thing I want to toss in is um, when you're, when you're trying to do those type of cast, if you're trying to do it with a, with a very thin leader, it becomes Mm -hmm. much more difficult. If you're using a leader that has more mass that can generate more speed, it's more of a cast. It's not a lob. Mm -hmm. It's going to allow you to, to make more of a fly type cast versus a, a lob with, let's say you're fishing eight pound test butt section. Right. That's a very important point. And that's what it comes back to is what you said, the butt section, how thick, how powerful is your butt section? Absolutely. With a thicker leader, you're going to have more control over that tuck cast. I was using a micro thin leader today for about the last half of the day. And I, it's it's a struggle to get a great tuck cast on it. You can get it a tuck cast, right? But you know what I mean. It wants to lay in rather than tucking in. You can do it, but my, you have to put some effort into it. And you need the other. You need some of your other tools need to be right too. You have to have the right weight. You have to have the, the right rod for it. Anyway, good point, Bill. Yeah, I've been playing. I played with the micro leader uh, this weekend, and to that extent, it it made me a little bit frustrated because I didn't have. I wasn't able to make the cast that I was used to with that thicker butt section. Yeah, I know, Bill, you mentioned before, like, I bet your tennis elbow was acting up because you have to work way Mm. harder, right? Yep, exactly, yep. Yeah. It's so much what you get used to, though, as well. Yeah, it's all relative to your prior experiences. Right, your leader, your rod, your cast. You try to, you change one of those elements up, it's gonna, it's gonna feel odd. All right, let's go to the next question here. This one's from Chad Fortney by way of email. Uh, Dom and Austin, thank you for this series. I think I've listened to each one of them three times already. As a relative nice. beginner to the tight line game, this has made everything so much clearer. That's cool. But of course, I'm pretty confused about things too. I'm still struggling to read the cider for the strike zone, as you call it. Any other tips? I guess my main trouble is that contact from episode five looks a heck of a lot like the strike zone to me. Any help? I'd say if you're having a hard time noticing the difference between the zone above the strike zone and the strike zone, Mm -hmm. then find the bottom. And then honestly, like make a mental note of where your cider is when you hit the bottom. And then right before your cider gets to that point, like, I mean, I'm really, it's just like help yourself by giving yourself like a, like an extra clue. Mm. as to when that strike zone is coming. You know? <laughs> I like yeah. that. So if, you, if you've hit the bottom and you know where your cider is going to be when your fly touches the bottom, mm-hmm. and then you put your cider an inch above that on your next mm-hmm. cast, then look for a difference in your fly from three inches above that and there. And so that, that way you know exactly when you should be in the strike zone. Nice. And you can look for the difference. And then you can use that on the rest of those drifts. So one of the first things you're saying, though, too, goes along with this, is staying in one lane and learning it. You know? Oh, for try, sure. Yeah. You know, don't try to cover a lot of water if you're really trying to, well, learn any of these. Like Trevor was saying, you know, one thing at yeah. a time. Don't worry yeah. about covering, covering a bunch of water. Just get a really great yep. drift. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when I was learning that, it was all about just find the bottom first. Yeah. Honestly, like drag on the bottom the first time. 
get a really yep. good mental picture of where your where your tippet is and where your cider is. And then I mean literally just measure two inches up from that on your next yeah. drift. Right. And two, three, four, five. Sometimes yeah, that strike right, exactly. zone is six or eight or even ten inches tall. For sure. It depends um, on the water. Right on. So that's a good way to find that strike zone. The, the difference, let's say, between reading contact on our cider versus reading for the strike zone on our cider. Uh, Trevor, you want to fill it in? Yeah, I'll, I mean, I'll at least take a stab at it. I mean, you're reading for two different aspects um, when you're reading between contact and you're reading between the strike zone. If you're in the strike zone, you're looking for a speed change mm-hmm. in in your guiding or leading of those flies and yep. the effect of the current on those flies is going to lessen when it gets into that cushion above the substrate. Mm-hmm. However, when you're looking for contact between your rod tip and your cider and then your flies beneath it, yeah. what you're looking for is this level of tension nice. that, that you can, mm-hmm. and I think you put this really beautifully, Dom, is that sliding, you know, like you can slide in and out of it but yeah. you get a sense with your leading of those flies that this is that there is tension between your rod tip and the flies mm-hmm. and when you can feel that oftentimes you'll you can take it to the extreme one direction and you'll you <laughs> will mm. see your system straighten out right and you can take it to the extreme in the other direction in a useful sense where you slide into maybe more more that you're just guiding the flies and at that point you mm-hmm. you may have a bow in your cider if you have a a limp enough cider, nice. Uh, but you're going to still have this sense of your entire system is moving at the same speed, and there is no extra slack there, and and you can tighten it up with the slightest increase in speed of your of your leading, whether that's just turning your body or whatever. But yeah, you're looking for two different things there. I think that's a perfect answer. Ah, good, good. And, and I would add yeah. the I I feel like I think you guys said the the word downshift with yeah. the cider yeah like when yeah. you know you're in Good the strike too. zone it's a devin olsen term um let's say you're fishing you know the the seam or the current if your flies and your cider are drifting down the stream faster than what the current is that means you're probably not in the strike zone oh yeah right mm-hmm. my goal is always that the cider should be a little bit slower than what the current is right because mm-hmm. in my mind, it's like, okay, well, then it's giving the fish more time to eat it. Mm. Well, and if you're faster than the current, you're leading those flies, right? Right. You, yeah. It has to be artificial acceleration. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. yeah, one more thing here on this question. Really, make sure you can read contact on the cider before you start to try to trust what that cider is telling you about the speed. So you're not really going to be able to trust the cider and understand the speed and then the strike zone before you can first recognize that contact. And I love what you were saying, Trevor. You're going to ride the extremes or find the extreme. Just give yourself a whole bunch of tension. Lead them way too much. And you'll see that, and you'll even feel that tension. And then relax it so much Mm -hmm. that your cider gets sloppy. And then get tension again. And see it. And then let your cider get loose again. I like that. Right, right. That's a good thing. Find the extremes, and then you can tighten it all up. And you can drastically overweight it, too. If you're right. if you're trying to find the zone, just drastically overweight the flies and see what yep. it is. If they're literally just crawling along the bottom, as long mm-hmm. you know, find a find a gravel bar, and you know, just practice it and get used to it. Where you know you're not going to hang up all the time, but there may that gravel bar might have some depth changes, and it'll with that heavily overweighted system it'll give you the opportunity to kind of see what it's like to drift through there a lot slower than what the current is. Yeah, that's a great tip too. You could drop shot it too. If you really plan for a lot of bottom contact, drop shot's a lot of fun. This episode is supported by Freestone Coffee. You'll love sipping on it, guaranteed. Freestone Coffee is wildly delicious and dedicated to the sport of fly fishing. All Freestone Coffee is fresh roasted for your order, and 5% of proceeds go back to conserving the streams we love to fish. Freestone is just getting started, and they love your support. Head over to freestonecoffee.com and use code TROUTBITTEN for 15% off your order. That's code TROUTBITTEN for 15% off your Freestone Coffee order. Love it or your money back. Hey, let's move to the next question. This is from Cameron Merrick from Instagram. Uh, 
Cameron asks, how important is the length of tippet? It seems I always have difficulty deciding on length. I think it makes a difference. I I mean, I was going to say it makes a big difference, but I do think that some of this does come down to your personal preference as well. Mm -hmm. But I think because the rigidity of your system, let's assume we're nymphing with Mm -hmm. four or five or six X, the rigidity of your system is occurring from that tippet ring up into your cider, into your leader. And so you're going to have a more difficult time the longer your piece of tippet is because you're going to have a very loose and kind of like pliable and limp section out of the water. And not only is it far out of the water, but it's also poorly visible. And so Mm. I feel personally like the closer I can get my cider to the water, the better I read my drift and Mm -hmm. the less difficulty I have controlling whether I'm guiding or, or leading um, my entire system. Um, it's just like it creates a lot of play in your system to have a really long, unnecessarily long tippet piece. Mm-hmm. I'm going to throw in, I, I like to be able to see both my cider and the water where I think my flies are kind of in, in the peripherals. What I mean by that is if I've got mm-hmm. a lot of tippet and I'm generally fishing, let's say two to four feet of water. Sure. You know. But like you have eight feet of tippet. And if I've got eight feet of tippet yeah. on, then I've got four feet of tippet out of the water at least. Yeah. You know, at the very well, at the very least. You know. Or yeah. you'd have to go really almost horizontal. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And then it's really right. hard to to read. And so I like something, you know, right in the five foot area. Yeah. That that way, you know, this it's usually like maybe a foot and a half of tippet above the water and then my cider. And so mm-hmm. I've got a really it's really easy to be able to see both the water, my tippet, and my cider. You know, in the same area. Are you saying from your cider to the bottom fly in your rig, you're looking at about five foot? Yep. Yeah. Are we all kind of there? Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty similar yeah, to Josh. I think I'm so. Five, five and a half foot. And for similar reasons, I, I don't often, um, I'm not one to add or take away sight or uh, tippet material often. Right. Um, more or less, I'll just adjust the height of my rod tip or the angle of the cider. That's yep. the advantage of tight, one of the advantages yeah. of tight lining. You know, yeah. Keeps you in the game fishing more mm-hmm. instead of tying knots. I'm probably three and a half to four feet. Mm-hmm. Ooh, It'll work between yeah. my bottom fly. Now, do you dunk your cider sometimes? Yeah, I, I like my cider like right, like you know, the cider is on yeah. the water if not submerged an inch or two. So that's great. But until you get what when you get to a four foot deep section of water, then you are going to have to have your cider a good bit of your cider under the water. Yeah. See, for me, I I, I hate that the way I feel about it like there, there's some guiding principles for me and one of them is is limiting the tippet diameters or limiting the material diameters under the water so i just get obsessive about it obviously it works for you bill but i hate having any of my cider under the water because well now this you know the current's pushing on that cider a lot more yeah if, it, if it's a 1x cider than it is pushing on my 5x tippet for example granted it probably doesn't matter all that much. And what matters so much more is how you'd be fishing it, how you were tuck casting, how you're leading it, all that other stuff. It's just, it kind of gets in my head. And it's just one of, one of those things for me, I rig up, I make things so that I am going to have, always have my cider out of the water. You know, there are times when we'll float the cider and we've talked about that. I'm sure we'll dig into that someday. But yeah. I also think the more weight you have in your system, the less it matters, you know? Like mm-hmm. if you're... yeah. I probably fish a little heavier, so it probably doesn't affect right. my flies quite as much. Right. Yes. The tension on that cider that you're pulling through the water is going to reduce the effect the current has on it. Yeah. Also, Bill's tippet is 1x, so yeah, 1x, <laughs> 1x down to 3x. Right. So this is a good time <laughs> right. to point out, too, that it's it's difficult, but if you say, well, that Bill Dell guy, he, he fishes uh, thicker tippets, so that's what I'm going to do. Well, the rest of your rig needs to meet that, you know, Bill's objectives too. Yeah. I mean, you know, we all kind of have our own preferences, ways for dialing things in. And it is kind of tough to just take one thing from the way one person does and say, I'm going to do that. You have to kind of understand yeah. everything that goes along with it. Fishing heavy works for Bill. You know, we just said like fishing three, three and a half feet of tip, it works for Bill because he's willing to put his cider under. I'm not very often. And, you know, it, it, we talk about he likes to overweight. Lots of other people like to underweight the system. It's uh, there's a lot mm-hmm. of room for improvisation. Yeah, 
Absolutely. A lot of times I lead flies. Mm -hmm. And if I move to guiding flies, I I am fishing probably a little bit more tippet and I'm probably fishing a little bit lighter flies because that's conducive to that technique, I think. Right. What I find interesting is that you fish heavier nymphs and yet you fish lighter streamers than, well, than me. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. On a tight line rig, we mean. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's. Mm-hmm. I, I I like to see the streamer. I think that's the. Um, I will fish heavy ones though, if needed, but I I really like that kind of mid current pause when it comes to streamers. Yeah. All right. Here's the next question. This is from Tim Corin by way of email. Dom, this series has been a revelation. Previously, I had tried Euro nymphing, but I never really quite got it. The lessons through your podcast have helped tremendously. <laughs> I'm going to interrupt myself. I feel like Tom Rosenbauer on the uh, Orvis podcast, <laughs> the uh, fly box section. <laughs> <laughs> we love you, Tom. <laughs> All right. So Tim goes on. However, I'd say I struggle with the cast. I'm stuck on the second step. Basically, I feel like I don't have enough direction or accuracy. I know I need more power, and I've tried putting more juice in the cast, as you say. But I still feel like I'm working a lot harder than I should. Do you have any advice? I, I think with casting, what I see, at least in guiding a lot of times, is mm-hmm. um, not a lot of people let that rod load. Uh. So if you're having trouble generating line speed on your back cast, are you fully waiting for that rod to load? Mm-hmm. And so kind of to, to kind of validate that point is just take the line, throw it behind you, let the fly in the water behind you, and then come forward with your cast. And if you're generating more line speed that way versus in your normal casting stroke, that means you're not letting the rod load enough. Yeah. Another thing, I guess a follow-up question to that, if if you feel like you don't have enough juice or you're struggling to get enough juice or power in your cast, mm-hmm. uh, you got to look at your equipment too. Are we, are we fishing a yeah. two-weight or a three-weight with a really thin leader and light flies? Right. If that's the case, you're going to feel that way. And that's going to be a normal feeling to some degree. Right. Because there's just not enough mass to help you out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The fly fishing industry talking about Euro nymphing doesn't help us with this. And just saying like the lighter the rod you go, the lighter yeah. the system is, the better it's going to be. Yeah, that might be true for feeling the moment a fish takes, but that's certainly not true for getting the fly into the fish's mouth. Agreed. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the number one thing for me that sticks out is you just need more weight. I think if you're in this situation and you feel like you're working too hard, you just need more weight. Uh, again, well, like Josh said, there's a big push in the industry. You need to fish lighter and lighter and lighter. Well, okay, but if you're really feeling like you're struggling, put more weight on. We discussed this, uh, I forget which episode, but I, I, mm-hmm. I'll I, say 50 centigrams, 60, 75 centigrams. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, that's a number 12, number 10 tungsten beaded stonefly or waltz worm, or whatever, you know, put a 3.5, four millimeter bead on there, and you're going to get that weight. And then you can really feel what you're doing. You're going to feel the rod load. Bill's talking about that. You're not really going to feel that rod load, no matter how much you stop, if you don't have enough weight back there. Now, eventually you start to even just feel the load of the leader and all that stuff. But to start, don't try just fishing a single 16, you know, or even a single 14. Right on. Get some weight in the system. That's going to get you down and things are going to be established. You're going to get better drifts anyway. You can't really do it. You certainly can't learn it without enough weight. And mm-hmm. I'll just wrap up what I'm thinking about this by saying that you can eventually then fish lighter. But that does not mean that fishing lighter mm-hmm. is always better. We do one, yeah. we do the other. Today I was doing both, just seeing what the fish would kind of prefer because it does change the drift. We've talked here in this podcast about overweighting. And yeah, you can underweight and just track the flies. And that's what, that's what that episode was all about. They're both great. One is not better than the other. But if you're just starting, don't try to go real light right away. Start heavier. And you're going to eventually learn lighter. And then you're going to come back and forth between the two. Anybody else on that one? I don't want to assume where anybody's coming from in these questions. But, you know, when it comes to casting, the way that we talk about casting the mono rig, it does require good fly fishing casting principles. And, you know, you, you only have to go to Fisherman's Paradise and take a hike to see a lot of people throwing their whole arm back and forth trying to cast fly line Mm -hmm. when the fly cast comes from, you know, a lot of the motion and a lot of the action comes from 
the flex you can impart to that rod through loading just with the wrist and with the, arm, mm-hmm. the forearm. And Back so the small motions we talked about, right? With the tuck cast, right, the small, small motions. Crisp. You want to load the rod tip, and so go go if you need to go back and look at the fundamentals of an actual fly cast and yeah. start there, and then transfer those principles over into the mono rig. But understand that you're going to have to be even better in some regards at those principles and take more speed with you, which doesn't mean trying harder necessarily. It just means building more speed with that whip-like motion that can transfer through your wrist into that rod tip. Um, so you can you can definitely over over try and over mm-hmm. the, it almost and the fly cast is a very paradoxical you know athletic motion mm, indeed nice the less you try almost right, right you know you shouldn't look like you're trying hard That's so to make true. a good fly cast I remember when I first started out my buddy was like you know he's like man that guy is a really good caster I'm like he's not doing anything and he's like yeah that's how you can tell <laughs> yeah yeah right on. Trevor, I like having you back. Hey, thanks. You know, that's a great breakdown. I get, I get new vocabulary from Trevor being around. <laughs> paradoxical. <laughs> it's paradoxical. Pythagorean. I still need to look that up. That was Austin's word. Don't try to take it from him. <laughs> hey, guy. He's watching TV. Hey, guy. Hey, guy. <laughs> <laughs> you need blue blockers, bud. I'm right here. <laughs> blockers. <laughs> <laughs> we've met we've met his threshold he's like i've put in my time in season two it's you guys <laughs> that's right let's go all right hey let's do another question this is marcus from germany how do you fish and drift around obstacles like logs rocks and things will you talk about your setup and execution that's a pretty cool question i like that one to me i i try to if i'm fishing an obstacle i will kind of go around it at a distance, let's say maybe I want to try to drift around it at a foot and then I'll kind of slowly work my way closer to it. Mm-hmm. Um, meaning I, I don't want to go for the gusto first off because if I hook it and there's a fish around there, I'm right into the snag or whatever right away right versus if I, you know, drift it through that rock and there's a fish there and maybe he's willing to come out a foot. That's kind of my strategy. Yeah. I try to visualize also, like if I see a log headed into the stream bed and let's say it disappears into the depths, Mm. I try to kind of predict and visualize, well, you know, it's probably, you know, this many feet in front of me. It's probably got some tree branches connected to it still. Where's my snag? uh, Yeah. And I'll do the same thing as you, Bill. I'll kind of ease into it until I'll go for the full risk. I also, when I'm, those certain obstacles, I will sort of plan my fishing through that section based on that obstacle obstacle. So I will make that obstacle the top end of my cast to begin with and kind of drift from that obstacle down mm, if okay. it's a big enough obstacle. And then I will actually move up four or five steps and then make that the end of my drift on the other side. And so it does depend. I mean, I'm talking about a big enough obstacle that I'm not going to necessarily have an easy time drifting through it or it would alter my drift mm. enough that I feel like mm-hmm. I'm going to have a poor drift if I try to... Don't try to... Don't try to do such acrobatics in getting over an obstacle that you ruin your entire drift or ruin 50% of your drift, you know? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. Or shorten up your drifts before and after it. Like, the longer your drift is, the more chance you have to snag it, too. There's a follow-up question on that for, for anybody. When you guys are fishing, like, so let's say there's a submerged limb or log, and you think you're close to probably hitting it, do you ruin that drift? Or maybe ruin's not the right word, but lift over? Or do you just let that drift through and see what it does and see if it catches or not? The fifth time through, I let it nice. sink the, yeah. or something like that. Yeah. yeah, I don't want to ruin it Right. and wade into that pool. You know, if that log's at the top of the pool and I got to wade up there and get it, I'm not going to be too happy mm-hmm. if I hit it on the first drift because I got greedy. I call it hang up or hook up. I'm either going to hook up with a fish or I'm going to hang up on a limb. If it's a great yeah. piece of structure, I'll say, all right, I'll, I'll go ahead and Get down in there until I snag. Yeah. Literally, until I until I snag. Then I'll go get it. I think you had an article that said work your way down the column. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. In places like that, from top to bottom. We think we're nymphins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I better get right to the bottom. Yeah, I don't want to touch the bottom on the first drift. Very often, you know, they're going to come up and eat it even if I don't get in the strike zone. Uh, yeah. So I'd rather, yeah, drift down to them. Two, three, yeah. four drifts, it'll take me to actually get you know to the point where, okay, now I'm willing to stick if that's going to 
if it's a, there's yeah. a lot of wood down there, okay, now I'll risk it. Like you said, Bill, about five casts. I think following up to uh, your original question there, Josh, is, you know, if I'm approaching an obstacle, I'm, I'm not going to lift my flies up and then try to drop them back down on the other side. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll do a firm hook set right before I reach that obstacle and then keep fishing up because I'll assume that I've started downstream and that mm-hmm. top cast has started with a hard tuck right at the lower border of that log obstacle or, or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. So I'm getting both sides of it cleanly. Um, and not getting okay. hung up on it. That makes sense. You got a really good point there when you said you're fishing to the obstacle, and when you get to the obstacle, you're setting the hook, mm-hmm. like setting the hook slash starting your next cast. Exactly. And so when you're doing that, sometimes you're not going to pick up that fish, like you're not going to detect that strike. And so by setting the hook, I've caught a lot of fish that way yeah, because nice. you're you're coming into that obstacle and right when you're about, when you're to the point where you think, Hey, I'm going to hang up, I'm going to set the hook slash get the fly out of there. Mm-hmm. And Oh, there's a fish. Yeah. Right on. So you guys are just saying, just plan it out. You know what you, when you're going to fish a, mm-hmm. an obstacle yeah. that you think you might lose your fly on or catch a fish, then plan it out. Well, yeah. Take a second to think about it first. Yeah. Let me back up to Marcus's question. He's talking about logs and rocks. And take a rock, take a big old rock, put it in the middle of the river, and it's really break. Let's say it's three feet wide, and it's really breaking the currents up. And let's say you know uh, a foot of it is sticking up out of the water. So if I'm fishing to the left of that rock, um, and I'm hitting the current that is not so much affected by the rock, you know, I'm leading up into it like Bill was talking about. I cast. I get my rod tip in the right position, and I'm pretty much going to keep my rod evenly coming downstream, you know, leading downstream, whatever, tracking, pretty much downstream in one path. But as I get to the drift where I'll cast up into the lane that's actually going to go bang into the rock and then have to go around it, I'm going to be much more aware. And then I'll start planning out like Josh was saying. I'm going to think, as it approaches that rock, that current is going to push to the left. And so I better do something with my rod tip to allow that fly to kind of push to the left. And you kind of help it to go through that current the right way. And of course, then once it gets past the rock, then it might want to slide into that slow stuff, what I call the stall downstream of the rock. And if if the fly wants to do that, I'm going to let it do it because that little transitional seam, that merger seam, is a real sweet spot, and we all know that. Yeah. But I so to summarize, I'm saying that when I am around obstacles like that and you have currents gone multiple directions instead of straight just downstream i want to be very aware of that and i find that's part of the fun challenge for fish and pocket water you can just throw it in there and see what happens but boy if you really are looking at what you're doing you're going to get some excellent drifts so kind of what you described is you're you're leading it through part of the drift and then you're guiding it through some of the drift as well like you're you're affecting it at times so that you're not going to end up into that snag but then you're you're guiding it later on to kind of let it to settle around that rock because that structure is probably where a fish is at. Yeah, and I'm very aware of my tip, uh, of my rod tip, you know, because that's, of course, what controls everything that you're talking about, and it controls the direction and the path. If the fly wants to go to the left because the current's going to the left, I I don't want to be in, I don't want to stand in the way of that, you know what I mean? Yep. And so when you have obstacles, like Marcus is talking about, that's what I'm thinking about, especially the ones that are above the surface. But you know what? I mean, it matters just as much when they're below the surface, too. We just can't see it as easily. Hmm. Anything else, guys? Anything I else had, for this whole series? I had one. When you guys set the hook, are you often doing it kind of in an upward set, in a flat, almost in like parallel to the water? Do you guys have a preference? I almost always set right into my back cast. Wherever the direction of my back cast is going to go, that's where my hook set goes. And that almost always is. Downstream, it's up. If you really want it's not parallel with the water. It's kind of at a 45, I suppose, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. That's a cool thing to think about, Bill. When I set, I almost always set parallel to the water. I I don't know why. I Like over the years, I've just got it ingrained in my head like I should set at a flat backwards. And almost sometimes I'll set down like so if i'm fishing up Mm. and when i set the hook i'm doing like my rod tip may start let's say a foot off the water and by the time i'm done setting the hook it might be six inches off the water i've got it stuck in my head that if i go up i feel like i don't get as good of a hook set but when i start missing fish that's what i start to 
I'll start to change the angles of where I'm setting the hook if I'm starting to miss fish. That's neat. That's better than blaming it on the hooks or, you know, anything yeah. else. Mm-hmm. The fish are just hitting short. Uh, with your method of doing that, you're going to absolutely be setting into the fish, you know, the best. The downside, as I see it, is that it's it's not going to get the line out of the water quite as efficiently, let's say. So you must let's set the hook, and then you're going to kind of have more of your back cast motion deliberately after yeah. that. Right on. It's gotcha. also hard to set like that with an indicator, in my opinion. If you're trying to set down or, or really parallel, mm. you're going to be yeah. fighting the drag of that indicator. And mm. that could slow down the actual movement of the line from the indicator to the fish. All right, so you just mentioned the Indy. Let me mention this too. I received a ton of questions about adjusting a mono rig. Fishing tight line to the Indy, going to a tight line dry dropper setup, fishing streamers with a uranymphing rig, and more things like that. And I'm with you. Uh, by now, you understand my obsession with being versatile. And what we've done with this series is to set the baseline for every variation to a tight line rig that can follow. This baseline, though, is infinitely tweakable, and you can always make it better. That, in turn, improves the other variations, of course, and the circle continues. So we won't try to cover those questions here, but I will direct you to a few resources. Uh, We did two podcasts in Season 1, Fly Fishing the Mono Rig, Versatility, and the Tight Line Advantage Taken Further. That was number five in Season 1. And we did Nymphing Tight Line to the Indicator Style, Contact Nymphing Principles with an Indie, which was Episode 12 of Season 1. Uh, There are also hundreds, literally hundreds, of in-depth articles on the Trout Bitten website covering tight line techniques and all the variations you desire. I'll link to some of those in the show notes. Thanks very much, guys. This is a good time. Good to have everybody back. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it feels good. Great to be here. So, all right, there it is. That's your bonus round for this Trout Bitten series covering the nine essential skills of tight line and Euronymphing. Together with the companion articles for each podcast, I think this is a great resource that adds to the bank of knowledge out there and puts more trout in the net. So season two is a wrap. And in just a couple weeks, we'll be back with season three of the Trout Bitten Podcast. We'll return to the season one format where Bill is allowed to disagree with everything and and Wolfsmith goes on and on about science and other things. (laughs) Yeah. Hey now. I'm also happy to share that our buddy Matt Grobe will join us for uh, much of season three. And if you heard Grobe in his season one appearance about big trout, then you know we're all in for a treat or something like that. (laughs) So look for that in your Trout Bitten podcast feed. Until then, keep in touch with the new article content on the website and look for new videos on the Trout Bitten YouTube channel from Wilds Media. Austin, will you read us out? I sure will. So I hope by now you've remembered that TroutBitten.com is a free resource for all anglers. With over 800 articles, there are stories, commentaries, tactics, tips, and more. Find what you like through the top menu and through the search page. Navigate by way of the categories and the tags too. Thank you for listening to the Trout Pitten Podcast. Please give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment because it really does help us out. Until season three, friends, fish hard, enjoy the day, and find your life on the water. This is advanced stuff.